Martin, where are you? Budapest. Ah, city of cathedrals. Yeah, I see you right there on the bridge of the Danube, kid. I kind of like to talk to you, you know. Well, right, why don't you email me? Ah, uh, kind of like a, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, kind of a face-to-face -face type of thing, you I know. Do it personally? Yeah, I'd love to see, you know what I mean, kid? Let's, let's do it. How you doing, kid? How are you? Good. Good. Hey, mental telepathy, uh, astral projection, you know. Here you are. <laughs> right. What do you want? Kid, I'm putting together a little concern, which would uh, enable those of us in our rarefied profession to avoid uh, embarrassing overlaps. What, like a union? Yeah, more like a club. Work less, make more. That's a great idea, but um, thank you, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Remember Burma? Yeah, I do. That nut General Quang. You were like a colonel in that army or something, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he sold you all those tanks and shipped them to Alabama? Yeah. T-34s, I took a bath on that. Yeah, that was fun. That's what I'm talking about, kid. We could be working together again, for God's sake. You know, making big money, killing important people. I want to structure an arrangement where you get, like, you know, shares, original shares in the ground floor. And you would be the president of this organization, or maybe just a father figure to me. Hey, if you want a father, I'll give you a spanking. Yeah, forget about it. Look, the employers are getting us a lot cheaper, because yeah. there's so many more of us. Well, after the Berlin thing, what can you do? Soviet bloc collapse? Yeah, the market's right. flooded. Okay, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at consolidated bargaining, okay? Mm. Look, I don't want to play against you. This thing is real. How real? Moranga brothers, uh, them uh, East German ex-Stasi guys. Oh, I don't like those guys. Them uh, butch Filipino ladies? The little, uh, the dwarf uh, maid, the... Stabbers. Queens at a hotel hip, you know. You got a great crew. Everybody's in. Yeah, well, not me, so don't paw at me with your dirty little guild. All right, well, you know, life's full of second chances. And uh, here's chance two for you. You think about coming in with me. Mm -hmm. You ponder, okay? I'll think about it. Because either way, I'm going to get you, kid. Yeah, get what? Get back. Hey, <laughs> bing, 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 bang. Popcorn. Yeah, whatever. Nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too, buddy. You like that Pacific Northwest country, all the mist and that up there? Haven't been there in years. <laughs> Catch you. Yeah, you look great. Nice to see you again. <laughs> Drive safe. Well, well, it is episode five of the Point 10 podcast. We are back today with The Ohio State University's Jay Plasma to talk about 1997's Gross Point Blank. Once again, this is a Jay Plasman choice, and I am so glad that he picked it. <laughs> it's a little unexpected. Would you call this an action movie, a rom-com? What is this movie trying to be? I, you got to call it all the above, right? Action, action rom, rom romaxity. Romaxity, I love that. The plot of this movie is roughly uh, Martin Q. Blank has uh, is a hitman. He is forced to return to his uh, hometown of Gross Point, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, in order to go to his 10-year high school reunion and try to reunite with Minnie Driver, who was really having a moment here in the late 90s. Uh, which will make all of his problems go away. But because he accidentally blew up some millionaire's dog, Boudreaux, a little plot point that I had utterly forgotten about. Spoiler alert, buddy. <laughs> when I uh, saw this movie originally, or when I was rewatching it, everybody is basically out to kill him. And then there's also Dan Aykroyd, who is fantastic. But again, spoiler alert, Everything ends up well with only a minimal body count. <laughs> and then whose body you're counting. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, I, I did not see this in, in the theater. Um, did you see it in the theater? I may have. I, I, like, I associate this with sort of like high school summer. It really strikes me as like, it's like reality bites PCU and then this for mo movies that I really associate with like who really like capture sort of a 90s vibe. I don't remember if I saw it in the theaters. I, my most of my memories of it are like from watching it on video in college. So yeah, I, that's definitely I'm sure that again it was probably Scott who introduced me to this uh, this movie as as with Swingers. Mm -hmm. But the same thing, well, when I when I first saw it, I was obviously 
you know, a couple of years out of high school. And I was like, man, 10 year reunion, what the heck is that going to be like? And then rewatching it earlier today, I was like, man, 10 year reunion. That was so long ago. Did you go to your 10 year reunion? I haven't been to a single one. Oh, really? I definitely went to my 10 year reunion, which gave it like, I don't think I've seen this movie since I've been to that 10 year reunion. And there's a lot of stuff that it sort of like checks out for me about the experience of showing up at one's 10 year reunion. I love the line. First of all, like this movie's got John Cusack and Jeremy Piven in it, who I had remembered playing a bigger role than I found him playing uh, this time. You know, that's mm. neither here nor there. But like, this is one of something like five movies they did together in the 90s. He was in like The Sure mm. Thing with John Cusack. He was in Serendipity, technically in 2001. Uh God, what was the other big one that he... Anyway, like, those two clearly have a rapport. And John Cusack is always in movies with his sister, Joan, who just does incredible work, both in this movie and uh, in... Every other movie. In every other movie that she does. Um, in this particular movie, when she described her own experience of a 10-year reunion, she says that it was as though everyone had swelled, which was exactly <laughs> right. People got, like... People got too drunk... Because everybody was sort of uncomfortable. There was like a group of people who were like, oh, everybody's like, oh, it's cool. Let's like, oh, you're a doctor now? Awesome. And other people who were clearly more nervous who had vastly too much to drink is what I remember of my high school, my 10-year reunion. That sounds glorious. It, um, yeah, glorious. I, so I was, I was in, I've, I've never been in town for my any of the reunions except for the 15th reunion. Mm which would, would have been summer of, of 2014 or something like that. And mm -hmm. the day afterwards, one of my buddies emailed me, he goes, Hey, why weren't you at the reunion yesterday? I said, what do you, what do you mean? No, nobody told me. <laughs> you go. You needed a cool. real like super organizer in charge of your class. Clearly is what uh, like needed a, to happen. Like a class president or like a class president. Somebody. Yeah, exactly. People and, dropping anyway. the ball in old Verona. Um, so one of the things that, uh, sort of struck me about this, uh, movie that is interesting. So like we talked about swingers already on this show, we've talked about the rock, we've talked about face off. Uh, some of these have more sort of explicitly what you would think of as sort of like geopolitical sort of implications. And we haven't even gotten to some of those movies, like every Tom Clancy movie, for instance, which deals explicitly in sort of like military sort of wars, but there is always a politics underneath these movies and like the overwhelming thing to me is like a politics of gender is going on here. Each one of these movies is sort of like a study on like what a certain kind of masculinity is or ought to be and what sort of consequences come with that. It was interesting. I know you've listened to our very first episode featuring Penny Von Eschen and Libby Anchor, but one of the interesting things that Libby Anchor says, uh, in that she, we were randomly talking about Mel Gibson for some reason. And she was like, and, and her book, ugly freedoms, which is awesome. She's like Mel Gibson, the figure actor, director, sort of character player just is the embodiment of ugly freedom by which she means like a sort of like unbridled sort of violence in the name of uh, a kind of freedom. That's usually tethered to something like vengeance uh, for some wrong done. Like that's, what his masculinity is like. I want to make the argument that like John Cusack is a different kind of figure. He's playing a similar character in almost every movie that he's in. It's hard for me to draw lines between, I mean, obviously, you know, in high fidelity he's a record store owner and not a hitman, but, uh, but his character type is roughly the same. It's same in the sure thing. It's same in say anything. He's, he's like, I, same in hot tub time machine. <laughs> Same in hot tub time machine. Exactly. He's like, there's something, there's something about his character that is, uh, it's not just about like the cadence at which he delivers his lines, but like, yeah, it's, there's something different that we should, that we should talk about in there. So he, the, the female counterpart of that is Kristen Stewart. Oh she my God. The same type of character. That's exactly right. I, there's there's a comparison I had not thought to make. <laughs> I will say, John, speaking of his cadence, he has a very soothing voice. Yep, yep. Uh, 
that is something that definitely plays in its favor. Like the character that he plays in this movie, aside from, you know, the f- obvious fact that he's an assassin, uh, what, what strikes me as being super nineties about this movie. And I'm, I really mean super like gen X about like uh, a sort of, uh, character when he gets back to gross point. I mean, in the scene with which we started this episode, we see him facing off with Dan Aykroyd, uh, what has happened, the reason that he is a like a hitman who works for himself is that basically the Cold War is over. He's no longer tied to any sort of nation state sort of alliance. We talk about like after Berlin, everybody's sort of in it for themselves. The whole like one of the like running jokes in this uh, movie is that everyone in the sort of assassin world knows one another. And much like you have in sort of academic conferences, people have very like – Somebody might be very good at their job, but you're like, oh, yeah, I know him. He's an asshole. That guy, like the dude who shows up, right? He's kind of a jerk. So, like, that's hilarious. But what uh, Dan Aykroyd's character is trying to do, he's like, oh, my God, like the market is flooded. Our prices are falling. What if we unionized? And that is the thing that uh, that John Cusack's character is pushing against. It turns out that that's also the thing that, like, part of the thing that caused him to freak out on prom night in 1986 and abandoned Debbie and go join the army and whatever is that like, he sort of, you know, he has that encounter with his teacher, his former English teacher who is like, we had you pegged for like Princeton or Harvard. And suddenly he can sort of see his life as like extending out in front of him as sort of like the, the company man, the man in the gray flannel suit. And he wants to resist that conformity and, take this like completely different tack. And now he's wrestling through like his therapy with Alan Arkin's character, et cetera, with trying to achieve a kind of self-actualization or like become who he authentically is. But this quest has and continues to sort of like cause him to reject all forms of attachment to other people. And like, that is a thing I see. I mean, it's it's got a specific sort of flavor in this uh movie but like that's not super different from high fidelity or the character he plays in high fidelity it's not super different from the character he plays in say anything where he has that wonderful speech over dinner at his girlfriend's dad's house uh where he he says that he doesn't want to buy anything sold or processed or sell anything bought or processed or process anything that's bought and sold and he just really wants to be a kickboxer so like Anyway, that's a fascinating sort of character study. And now he's like, uh, whatever. He's supposed to be 28 in this movie. Mini Driver is also 28. Now he's sort of like wrestling with all these sort of deep questions, etc. So would you say that he's typecast into this type of character? Like he, he, they're very different characters, but they all have the same kind of feel to them, right? Yeah. They're all going through the almost the exact same thing of this identity crisis. Right. Um, I I like, that's a great question. I don't know if he's typecast. Like it it would be interesting to know how he ended up in these jobs. Like he was a, he was a Hollywood actor from a fairly young age. He shows up in pretty, like he's one of Anthony Michael Hall's friends in like nerd friends in either pretty in pink or 16 candles. Those two run together mm -hmm. for me uh, when he was much younger like by this point in like the late nineties, it seems like he would have the ability to sort of write his own ticket to a certain extent. Like maybe you could like go pick these roles out. He'd been like, he'd been an actor for over 10 years in Hollywood. Yeah. That's all. That's all. I, I, that is to say, I wonder if the typecasting is something that like, I mean, it's not like Mark Hamill being like associated with Luke Skywalker forever, but like, But he certainly like it. I'm sure there's some sort of not to make a a joke, some sort of serendipity attached to it where like he he likes these roles. People are like, oh, you would be perfect for this role. And uh, it just sort of works out. But that's without having done a lick of research on this and how it all works. You're right that they have a certain uh, kind of flavor and that flavor like from uh, a present sort of day and age looks so I remember seeing like say anything when I was in high school, 
I remember seeing this movie, obviously, late in high school. And in both cases, I mean, this character is clearly a little bit more sort of morally problematic than Lloyd Dobler, who just wants to do the right thing, who sort of resists the objectification of women that his buddies are doing and is really all about Ione Skye's character and falling in love and seems like sort of like a perfect gentleman. But there's like, there's a certain kind of, I mean, there's a certain kind of self-involvedness that comes along with that, that really gets played up in this character that in a way that I hadn't, uh, that I hadn't maybe noticed in 1997 or like 1999 or whatever. I mean, high fidelity, that's his entire character is that he's like puts people through these sort of trauma, puts his exes through these traumatic re-rememberings of stuff when it turns out he's utterly constructed fantasies in his head of what those relationships were like just so he can get a kind of closure. But that is more or less what is going on in this movie as well. Alan Arkin Mm -hmm. is the most direct with that being like, I'm emotionally involved with you because I'm afraid of you because I know what you do for a living. That's why we can't work together. And and yet John Cusack is like, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep, coming to your office i'm gonna like make veiled comments like i know where you live and so like we're gonna do this he does that to Minnie driver's character uh as well a couple of times where she's like i will see you later and then he just sort of shows up unannounced in way i mean she doesn't know that he's a literal murderer so like okay although he does tell her right right off the bat he does okay well let's talk about that aspect of this movie too which is which is kind of funny he doesn't conceal that he like plays the old game of like just tell them the truth and they won't believe you. Everybody will think it's a joke. It happens with Jeremy Piven, happens with uh, Minnie Driver, happens with tons of other characters in this movie. What do you make of that? I mean, what would you say if someone walked up to you at your 10th high school reunion and was like, I kill people for, kill people for a living. You'd be like, Haha, cool joke. Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Um, this person doesn't really want to engage in this conversation. So like, I'm just going to have a drink and walk away. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty realistic. Uh, pretty realistic you know better than him making up his stories about being a what couch insurance salesman or a pet psychiatrist (laughs) right whatever those other ones were that he was practicing to himself that's right so why ultimately does he go back to his high school reunion joan cusack pitches him this job that he does not know until the very end of the movie which may or you may or may not have gone through who the target is uh, in. So, okay. Go ahead. So obviously Joan Cusack does not know that it's Minnie Driver's father. Right. But my question, rewatching it this time made me, made me wonder if it was true that these people who had contract contracted him for that, the hit gone wrong were actually pissed at him and wanted him to, we're like, you have to do this one. Or if she's like, Hey, I noticed y'all had this hit in Detroit and it's you, you've sold it to grocer for a million dollars. We'll do it for your original number. That was like a hundred thousand. Um, as opposed to, cause he never talks to the clients. She does all That's the talking correct. to the clients. Right. And she really wanted, she, she's like, boss, I know you're messed up in the brain right now. Going back to this could be really good. She's been pushing him to do it. Yes. So was that just an excuse for her to, you got to do it. Gross point is the hit gone wrong, not the blowing up of the millionaire's dog in the Pacific Northwest someplace. No, the guy, the guy. At the oh, that guy. He, yeah. He they want amends. The, yes. So it was, the, it was those guys were mad. Mm-hmm. That, right. That he, it, because he was supposed to die of a heart yep, attack right. or die in his sleep or whatever. Um, a lot of hits so like, gone wrong. Well, now you have to, now you have to do this hit for free. At least that's what Joan Cusack tells That's us. right. But is that true? Or did she say, please let us have this Detroit hit. That's right. Like she could have negotiated that. She ends up coming into barging into the office and being like, I'm getting a real, like whatever destiny vibe from this. Uh, It's like, it's meant to be, you're going to be in Detroit at the same time. It it seems like it would be a hell of a coincidence if she did not uh, set that up. But like, you know, one of the, one of the other, so the big running joke in this movie is that uh, being, 
in the assassination business is just like being in any other business. So like looking at like the office that he has with Joan Cusack, who is uh, dressed as I think Sergeant Pepper is what John Cusack calls her at one point. Like it's just a bare bones office. She has a computer. His office does not. It's separated. It looks like, you know, like a private eyes uh, office from like a forties noir kind of thing. Roger Rabbit. (laughs) Exactly. Like Roger Rabbit. That by the way is, I saw that in theaters. I was probably too young to see it. I feel like my parents got confused by the fact that like it involved cartoons and I had like some, I had like a closet upstairs that had uh, like folding doors that had like a Venetian blind look. And there's that one shot in that movie where the big long barrel, the gun comes through that. I, I couldn't sleep for a couple of days after seeing that movie. So, yes. So Roger Rabbit sort of hits home for me. And that, but yes, it's a Roger Rabbit office, right? That's the office sort of aesthetic that they're going for. Uh, he doesn't do any of the talking to the clients. He just talks to Joan Cusack. And we never see Joan Cusack work except for a couple of times, one of which she is yelling at somebody on the phone because it's like it's written into her contract of every movie that she does that she's like, I will read all the lines that you want, but I insist that one of them be done at absolute full volume, absolute max delivery. There's, the, I mean, we should, we should watch a couple of clips, but here it's like that. I don't give a good goddamn what you've like done. Did you, you not that. see the 3000 supersonic nine millimeter rub? And then it's in high fidelity. She gets she gets what I think is one of her very best scenes in which she just enters the record store. John Cusack is like, oh, hi, whatever her character's name is in that movie. And she goes, oh, hi, Rob, you fucking asshole. And then walks out after which the best look on her face, best look on her face. Like She's like, I, I can't believe I just yelled at him. <laughs> it was amazing. Anyway, so that's <laughs> John. So Joan Cusack could have very easily set all that up, could have just been like, look, we'll do this hit for free. That the fact that John Cusack gets slotted in to do this gross point blank thing is he bumps Dan Aykroyd's character off the job, setting Dan Aykroyd's plan in motion to uh, to end up enlisting two roguish agents of the NSA to come and try to kill him. Meanwhile, again, from blowing up this millionaire's dog in the Pacific Northwest, uh, there's, I forget what country is he's from. Oh, a Basque separatist. Right, right. It's so when we're thinking about the politics of this movie, it's very funny to like all the places they name checked in that first scene talks about Burma, uh, talk about, we've got like Basque separatists. And then we have the NSA. I haven't seen the national security agency being name checked in an action movie in at least a decade, maybe not since nine 11. Like they haven't been, they haven't, achieve the kind of pop culture stardom that they had in this movie. They show up in Mm -hmm. sneakers weirdly. Like in the nineties, I feel like the national security agency was like, if you wanted to indicate that the feds were involved and their powers were almost limitless. And also you don't really have a good idea of what exactly they do. That's the, that's the agency that you use. Now it's just CIA or FBI. Now it's just CIA or FBI or like, I don't know. I know Sigma six or some, somebody that you've literally never heard of some like entirely made up agency, whatever, whatever mission possible. Right. Exactly. Um, so I think back to your, your, your original question is like, was about why he had to go back. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? Or why did Joan Cusack want him? Why to go did back? he go back? Like, why did he, so, so he, he could just, he, wa- he wanted redemption, right? Like he wanted to get over, he, he is starting to feel bad about killing. I don't know if they're innocent people, but killing people. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, you know, wants to go back to this idyllic life. Like I want to see my mommy. I want to see my, Oh yeah. He house. said that's a literal um, line in the movie. I want my mommy. Yeah. Um, And he has a couple of like of those encounters in which it absolutely falls apart. He tries to go home. It's been converted into this convenience store in which he eventually has this 
awesome shootout while Motorhead's <laughs> Ace of Spades is playing in the background. That that song continues to dominate. Uh, and then he goes to see his mom and she has a very sort of theatrical form of dementia uh, and is sort of in a home. So like everything that he thought he was going to reconnect with is no longer there, except and this is the part to sort of talk about, except his 28 year old ex-girlfriend whom he stood up on prom night and then vanished without a trace. And this being like the early days of the internet, it's not like, like he was just unfindable and she has just had no idea where he is. And then he just sort of swoops back into her life at one point. There's a lot of problems here, but like, like this seems like it's going to be, it's going to, it's setting himself up for another one of these failures. He says at one point in the movie, like you can't go home again, except if home is mini driver. Apparently. What do you make of that whole relationship? What do you make of mini driver's character? I always, so whenever I watch, I, I, whenever I've seen this movie, I always think that she's, um, She's in a, she's dancing to a beat of her, a different drummer sometimes. I, I uh, feel like that's her, that she does that in almost every role. I think she's perfectly cast in Goodwill Hunting. She's perfectly cast here, but she's a little bit sort of like offbeat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just like the, the funny giddiness when he comes to her little loft area unannounced or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. She like kind of sprints to the door and asks him to airplane her and, uh, it's real like, like manic pixie dream girl kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then like the, her, her radio show and like the, uh, it's just kind of her, her, her style of speaking. I was like, well, I guess it's, you know, maybe like what somebody on an alt radio, alt music radio show would sound like, but maybe they're a little off too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he comes back to try to sort of, patch things up. This is, I mean, for her, he is literally the one who got away, who fled into utter anonymity, but also he is aware that he sort of, she is one of the relationships that he sort of ran away from. I feel like the 90s, like 90s sitcoms and sort of rom-com conventions are full of like, uh, the dude who doesn't want to commit or is scared of commitment in particular. And that's, that's Martin Blank's character entirely he doesn't know who he is he's mm. he's literally a blank and in trying to come back to his roots to try to get some uh to try to figure this all out his old home is no longer there his mom is no longer there but mini driver is there and here's the shot that he has at redemption and there's this like conversion point in the middle of the movie in which he ends up like holding this baby because like one of his high school classmates has like a one-year-old and is staring into like the big watery baby eyes as, uh, as the, the best lines from Queens under pressure plays. And I think we're supposed to be like, Oh, he's having, uh, an experience where he's sort of letting go of the past. And now he's thinking about the future. Uh, and maybe it includes human connection again or something. It's very odd how all of that works. So, so I was able to, I was able to watch up until he picks Minnie driver up to go to the reunion. Uh, and I'm trying to remember, I remember most of what happened. I remember the main, main thing. So then sure. they go to the reunion, fights the, ba- the, the bass guy, mm-hmm. stab, stabs him in the neck with a mm-hmm. pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, all is happy. Yay. Oh, wait. Now you have to kill this dude. Oh, turns out it's Mini Driver's dad. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. Now he has to fight a bunch of other assassins. Here's how this works. Okay. So fights the bass separatist, stabs him in the face, or the sorry, in the carotid. Uh, by the way, you know, Keanu Reeves very famously, like, knows his way around guns and does like actual sort of like martial arts training. He looks like he knows what he's doing. It's always hilarious to me when John Cusack is playing one of these characters. I feel like he plays it a, a little later in the early two thousands in a movie with Ray Liotta that I'm not, whose name I'm not going to be able to remember where he's like a marshal or something, whatever. Anyway, he always, he always looks kind of awkward when he's doing that. But I wonder like he must do something like 
you know, kickboxing. It's it's just too coincidental that it was like part of his character and say anything. And then he's also like this hitman who has like, you know, fight scenes where he is supposed to like move like he knows what to do with his body. Mm-hmm. It's odd. Anyway, stabs the bass dude, then Minnie Driver. So he has just had sex with Minnie Driver at the reunion, like in the nurse's right. office. That's like, it's all going to work out for him. He's like, let's get out of here. We're going to like, peel out of gross point. Exactly. Do the sort of like the thunder road, Bruce Springsteen scene and like set out, but together this time he's like, I will meet you out front. I just have to go visit my locker. She's like, I'll find you at his locker. The bass separatist shows up. He gets murdered. Then mini driver comes and finds him staring, standing over the, like the bass dude in way too little blood, by the way, uh, for like the severity that that got got the point across. Exactly. Mini driver's horrified. Jeremy Piven helps him. Thank God for like the American comprehensive high school, which has like an incinerator in the basement as Jeremy Piven helps him dispose of the body. And then like pieces out. We basically never see him again for the rest of the movie. Uh, fortunately at exactly that moment, uh, sort of like, so things fall apart with many drivers. She's, she, She's obviously horrified. She leaves. Don't talk to me. Martin Blank is in his hotel room. He's like, okay, fuck it. Let's just do this job and get out. Who are, who is the target? Holy shit, it's Minnie Driver's dad. He's aware by this point that, uh, you know, the Basque guy was there to kill him, that these NSA dudes are around, though, and he finds out specifically who they are and like, but he doesn't exactly know how they're connected. Oh, no. Joan Cusack's character tells him. Uh, so, she tells him that Grocer hired him to kill right. him after he kills the target or whatever. And so he knows Grocer's in town to do the job as well. So the minute he realizes that Minnie Driver's dad is the target, then he goes into protector mode. There's a whole scene where uh, Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd and like a group of whatever guild members, uh, dirty little <laughs> guild members uh, are driving this van. They pull up uh, on Mini driver's dad as he is on his morning jog. And just as they're about to shoot him, Martin blank in his Lincoln town car, he, one of his nicer lines of many drivers, like that's a nice car. Nobody buys American anymore. And I realized the joke is, yeah, he's got a town car. So does grocer. So he like pulls up in front. He gets the dad, uh, goes back to their house for some reason, probably because many driver is there. And then, and then he just sort of talks through his issues with everybody. He's like, I'm a changed man. Like I realize now, like spending time with it as he's like killing people who are trying to invade the house and, uh, and kill the dead. If you, if you only saw the first half of the movie, then you would have missed what I regard as the movie's best line period, which happens when, uh, so John Cusack has killed almost everybody, uh, Almost all the assassins are dead. Uh, Minnie Driver and her dad are like holed up in the in the bathtub in a bathroom upstairs with a gun. Uh, and the only person left is Dan Aykroyd. And so John Cusack and Dan Aykroyd are like separated by a kitchen island. They're both they've they've both got two pistols each. Uh, they're going to like pop up and kill each other. But just at that moment from behind John Cusack, who's got no cover, boom, in come the NSA dudes who uh, just start shooting randomly, but they can't hit anything. John Cusack turns around from his covered position and starts shooting back. And then up pops Dan Aykroyd with a big old smile on his face, pulling both triggers maniacally. NSA dudes get killed. They fall backwards. Uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Cusack are standing roughly side by side. Dan Aykroyd, same smile on his face, just looks over at John Cusack and it's like, workers of the world unite. <laughs> and then they go back to <laughs> like Ducky to govern. It's amazing. So, okay. So the, this, uh, when you, you're talking about the politics of the movie yeah, and yeah. all that and forming a union and workers. So does mm-hmm. that, does that make, uh, that make uh, Dan Aykroyd the, the the Tony Evers of the of the movie and and uh, John Cusack the the Scott Walker. I think I think yes. Uh huh. Like <laughs> not that I want to make Scott Walker into any kind of hero with a little bit like with a little bit like <laughs> paunchier 
or like less paunchy cheeks. He could have maybe looked like John Cusack in his younger days, maybe coming out of the whatever. Maybe when he, maybe when he was 28. Milwaukee County executive kind of thing. I don't think so. But uh, <laughs> yes, I think that maybe. So one of the interesting things here is that like watching this movie now, I, like I didn't understand when I saw it, like in college, like I got, I sort of got John Cusack and didn't really understand what Dan Aykroyd's sort of point was. But now I'm like, John Cusack, what the fuck is your problem? Like mm-hmm. you've got nobody in your life. Here's like, here's, uh, I mean, what he doesn't need to be a father figure, but here's at least somebody to go kill people with, you know, you can, and like work less, earn more or whatever. As, uh, right. as, yeah. uh, Dan Aykroyd says, there's no reason for, uh, the kind of enmity that they have, but it's all John Cusack. Who's just like, no, I would rather like, I'm glad the cold war ended. I'm glad I got to go into business on my own. I don't want to have to be involved with your club or guild or union or the, those are all things that they call it, you know? So what, what, what is that? His own, is that his only hang up? If he wants to be the lone wolf. I mean, he says that at one point in the, I think that's his, uh, I think that is his major hang up. He just doesn't want to have to be answerable to anybody. That's I think the the fear of the sort of human connection that uh that he sort of demonstrates throughout the movie. His sort of his uh sort of lashing out and driving people away and or like just abandoning people in general and wanting to be the lone wolf is about I mean, he always talks about it. Here's where the sort of toxicity politics of like gender masculinity kind of thing come in. He talks about it always in terms of protecting other people, even as his efforts to protect other people are hurting other people. Literally, I mean, I mean, I know he's a hitman. Everything we talk about here has to be premised by the fact that he literally murders people. But, uh, you know, he doesn't join Dan Aykroyd's union and has to end up killing Dan Aykroyd as uh, a sort of a result. He ends up getting sort of the lone wolf persona that he wants only sort of with Minnie driver, the second best line delivery, I think in, in this film is where he is in the middle of this like firefight with other assassins while he's trying to talk through the bathroom door to Minnie driver. And he's like, he's like, I think, I think I want to, uh, I think I want to marry you. Hold that thought for a second. And then he like comes back and uh, kills Dan Aykroyd, whatever, ends up back in the bathroom and is like, but I'm serious, like, let's get married. And then like out of the bathtub tub rises many drivers dad. And he's like, you got my blessing, <laughs> which is, let's be clear, an insane thing to say. Like, I realize that you're grateful that your life has just been saved, but you've just found out that this person who ran out on your daughter 10 years ago has spent the last 10 years killing people. Well, I mean, again, to be, to be fair to John Cusack, he did tell him uh, when he came to pick up Minnie driver that he was a hitman. So. That is true. And it's speaking of that scene, when he does come to pick him up, they have that little sort of uh, uh meeting in the den or whatever. Another thing that makes me think of this as sort of an iconic gen eight gen X movie is that Minnie driver's dad responds like, John Cusack's like, what have you been up to? And he responds by using the term same old sellout, just, you know, oppressing people and whatever, making money, blah, 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 which is, you know, playing on this John Cusack's idea of like what he absolutely abhors and doesn't want to do and wants to avoid doing. Better to be a hitman than to be the man. Yeah, exactly. So, so what do... Uh... What, where do they ride off into the sunset? What do they do after? Uh, what does their 20-year reunion look like? Their 20-year reunion. Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Uh, Jeremy Piven's a lot balder, I feel like, at that point. Yeah. I mean, this <laughs> would already happened. have happened. This would have happened in 2007. Real missed opportunity there for uh, the filmic world. Did they, did they go into business together? Did they start this? Uh, uh, he, he, uh, his and hers hit... hit people look that's how wedding crashers ends and we can't have like two movies like that (laughs) like wrap up like that that's not actually how it ends there's just a the briefest of sort of scenes where they're sort of like you know doing cutesy romantic things and then and then that's it and then the credits roll but like oh it's for for whatever reason i I thought they were driving off in a car together that i mean obviously it's goodwill hunting i'm pretty sure watch the end of it (laughs) 
Yeah, I grew up off alone. That's right. That's right. You had to go. See, you had to go see about a girl. They are walking towards the camera, sort of together, doing sort of like I forget. It's it's literally as cheesy as like in, eating ice cream or like taking pictures of each other or some shit like that. But in, that's it. Are they still in in? Gross I think point? so. I think so. Like the next, like the next day or something. So it's like right after the. I think so. I may have death. been feeding the baby while that like the end scene was happening, but so I'm not positive. But like, okay. So so what happens if they're or whatever twenty fifth? What happens if they're twenty fifth reunion? Are they? Do they? They they come back and what? What have they been doing the last fifteen years? So this is part of the problem I think with the movie. Like I can't I can't answer that. What did their lives look like after they actually leave Gross Point Blank or Gross? Did they did they leave? Point? Did they just take over? Did they just did, did they start like uh. <laughs> a, more, a drive time radio show together. Like what are they? It's, it, it's completely unclear, which is part of the problem. He's banked so much, so much of the movie and so much of his character is, is based on the idea that if he can get mini driver to love him again, then it kind of doesn't matter what else is going to happen. It will all work out. This is the thing that needs to happen. It, he says something crazy. So like they're at the reunion, uh, there's some dancing going on. They, you know, have some uh, exchange pleasantries with people. And then they sort of go up to what I think is like the basketball, like it, the bleachers over the basketball court where or the gym where the reunion is happening. Or maybe it's like an auditorium. They're like in a balcony looking down mm-hmm. on everybody. And John Cusack says something. He says at one point, he's like, sorry for ruining your life. What the fuck did he like? First of all, he has literally ruined lots of people's lives, like ended lots of people's lives. He did walk out on Minnie Driver or stand her up on prom night and then disappear. And that is super shitty. But like the idea that this thing from 10 years ago, everything about the way that she reacts to him when she sees him, that strikes me as super realistic. She's surprised, maybe still attracted, but like also hurt, and mistrustful. But has she been thinking about that every day for fucking 10 years? He acts as though she has. He, like, it has been clearly meaningful to him. Mm-hmm. He's been wallowing in this guilt. But part of this thing, this sort of, like, toxic gender politics kind of thing that I think is going on is that, like, he just, he's making the experience that he has had for himself and projecting it onto her and is just un like it's so obvious to him that it must just be the truth mm. uh, of the situation. She plays this character really well. I don't feel like this character could possibly be a real person. He just he like never asks like, did she graduate Gross Point High and then go to work in a radio station? How does it never come up? Like where she went to school or what she studied or everything is exactly the same. Her dad lives in the same house. Nothing has happened except as it's happened to him. And he doesn't really seem to care. He doesn't really give a shit. He's he's just totally incurious. That's the, uh, so when you think about this is getting back to my sort of original thing, I just want to plant this in your head. You don't have to respond to this exactly. But like when you think about Mel Gibson in the nineties as a certain kind of sort of masculine movie hero and John Cusack is a very different kind of masculine movie hero. I just want to like, they have some things in common is all like those character types have not much, but I don't know, some important things about like uh, shared assumptions about manhood, for instance. So at, at the end, does 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 John Cusack is he is he redeemed? Is he has he made up for everything? Is he is he all the weight is now lifted off his shoulders? He doesn't have to talk to Doctor Altman anymore. He does. He fires Doctor Altman at one point, <laughs> but this is, I think, this is after everything has gone wrong and before he is redeemed and before he redeems himself by protecting his new family from uh, the bad guys who are really just there to kill him. Well, sorry. They are also there to kill many drivers dad. And that's the thing that, yeah, but you know, two birds, one scone as my uh, doc students like to say. So he, he stabs the dude, in the neck 
Mini Driver comes find it. It all looks like it's falling apart. That's the point at which he calls Dr. Altman and is like, I don't feel like you're very serious about this th- process. Uh, it's just not working out for me. So this is me firing you. So it's weird. So he cuts that off before it all works out is the is the point. Is he redeemed? That's a harder question. According to, you know, the conventions of romantic comedy and what he expects of himself as a certain kind of masculine protagonist, I think, yes, clearly he has, there was a threat to the family unit. Uh, There were wounds that he inflicted in the past and through violent intervention, he has made, he has sort of made up for that or protected the family, shown that he can stick it out through tough times or whatever. So, yes, for him, like, it's hard to separate John Cusack's point of view from the point of view of the movie from, mm-hmm. you know, my perspective in 1997 or 1998 or 1999 or whenever I was seeing this for the first time. And then, like, now, I, I don't think I'm I'm willing to be like, oh, yeah, he can just, like, have a 10-year run of assassinating people and that doesn't have an effect. He says at one point, like, oh, I'm not worried about the morality of it. If I show up at your door, chances are you did something to bring me there. Good line. But but boy, like, he doesn't care about any – like, that's something he can just, like, walk away from and be utterly unscathed. But, like, running out on his prom date, boy, that'll stick with you. Yeah. I mean, I guess so the, the ending would – as you know, a typical rom-com ending would have you believe that they lived happily ever after, right? Exactly. Um, right. Not to, yeah. So, but I'm, I'm sure you know. A couple days later, she's like, the the trauma, traumatic moment has has passed. She's like, you killed hundreds of fucking people. Like, <laughs> you're a psycho. I mean. Uh, what are they like, like lie in bed and sort of, she's like, Hey, you know, tell me the story of like, just one of the, one of the stories of one of the dudes you killed. Did you drip some poison down from the, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's that part is kind of insane. Like he, he, one of the running things through, or one of the plot points is that he's been dreaming about mini driver, uh, something like, uh, like a recurring dream about, uh, prom night. And, and he sort of can't stop having this dream. What he says to her again in that scene where they're sort of in the balcony above the gym, he's like, I've been having this dream about you five nights a week for the last six years. Again, like that's what he is processing. So like now he's going to get together with Mini Driver. And then like a year later, does he start waking up in cold sweats from like, you know, replaying some of the gruesome murders he has committed? That's like, it's just, it's, it's a weird way that the movie handles, you know, the processing of uh, trauma and past pain. Mm -hmm. That's all. It's, it's a, it's a weird thing. On a much lighter note, another thing that I sort of, that I noticed about this movie is that, you know, I don't think at my 10 year reunion, which would have happened in 2008, I do not think that I take that back. One of my classmates had a kid like two of my classmates like the two like two of the popular kids were like sports stars got married pretty straight out of high school and started a family pretty much right away but it was striking to me how many sort of married couples were featured at the reunion and the fact that there were children present when everybody is 28 years old it wasn't like again these people are supposed to be in their late 20s i would have been 17 or I would have been 18 exactly when this movie uh, came out. Uh, So these people are only 10 years older than me, but I feel like all of my friends were getting married when they were 28 uh, and didn't start families until their sort of early thirties. So two things. One, I'm going to fact check you. When was your 10 year reunion? 2000. Okay. It was actually held in 2008. Although I graduated in 1990. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. 
Oh, no, damn it. I'm just wrong. It was in 2007. It was like Thanksgiving 2007. That's what it was. I was like, I was like, my class officers had their shit together and were like, just when is everybody going to be in town and let's have the reunion then. So it was like, you know, the day after Thanksgiving or something like that. So even, yeah, I mean, do you think something, so obviously something has changed since like the 1950s and now (laughs) as far as like when people get married and have kids, Mm -hmm. did it change in those 10 years from 97 to 2007? Was it that quickly? No, I don't. So like, or is it just like, this isn't realistic? It's probably kind of, okay. So here for whatever reason in like June, I was watching the, Oh, I remember it's because they, they came out with the new father of the bride, the like Andy Garcia and whatever, um, uh, Father of Bride. So like Chelsea and I watched the re- or the the Steve Martin remake of Father of the Bride, which I didn't realize was uh, an actual remake, which takes place in like 1986 or something. 85? Steve Martin one does? Yeah, right? Or oh, no, it's right. early 90s, right? It's, it's like 1990, 1990. Now I have to look it up. Anyway, I'm not going to look it up. <laughs> uh, in that... Uh, in that father of the bride thing, he's like, you know, she, his daughter is like, is telling him that she's going to get married. She's just back from studying abroad. And so she's like 20 years old or something and she's engaged or whatever, 20, 21, 22. And, and Steve Martin is like, absolutely not. You're too young. And Diane Keaton, who is playing his wife, I'm pretty sure is like, is like, we were 23 or maybe his daughter comes back and it's like, you were 23 when you got married. So this is to say that I think from especially like maybe the late seventies, early eighties, my parents got married when they were 22 and, but, and they, they were the weird ones cause they didn't have kids until they were 30. Uh, whereas, uh, and, and so then like by the early nineties or the late eighties or whatever, we're having an argument about whether 22 is, is too young to be getting engaged. Gross point blank. People are already sort of coupled up in, uh, at the age of 28 and, and are like starting to have kids. And then, you know, a decade later, I just think it's been sort of like a continual progression. I'm sure that like, there are some like, you know, center or like right of center conservative people who are like, Oh, the extended adolescence of the American male, just lazy people not wanting to get a haircut and get a job, blah, blah, blah. So also mini driver has been married and divorced in, in between that, that 10 years. Somehow that is a detail that I did not. They'd probably be yeah, very, uh, uh, they, this, they brought it up at, the, when she goes to drinks with him. That's right. Another scene in which like the baby was yelling at me and like, I was not able to, yeah, that's right. Wow. And again, um, he just yeah. is completely incurious about that. Like nothing in no, that. No, really. he, well, he, yeah, he, he asked her about it and then he's like, never mind, It doesn't matter. Exactly. He, that, that's right. I do remember that. He, 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 he asks a question and it's like, you know what? I don't give a shit because the story is yeah. not about him or you really, this is about us. Yeah. That's well, about, yeah. It's about John Cusack. It's about John Cusack, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Finding the the golden goose. The golden goose. The goose that lays the golden egg. That's that is utterly Mini Driver's character. So, like rewatching it, do, in what ways does this movie work? Does it work as a rom com? Does it work as sort of like a '90s Gen X film? Uh, what's the best part of this movie? Do you think this was a delightful movie when I saw it the first time? It's still delightful, even though I'm thinking about like representations it's, it's, of masculinity and whatever. It's definitely a rom com. Yes, um, it is absolutely a rom com. Uh, it's it, uh, we briefly talked about this with on um, a phone call the other day about mm-hmm. how it's a hilarious Dan Aykroyd performance. Um, this, I I think this is his best film role. I, I don't even have... he, he he might be he might be the best part of this movie um he, yeah he, he's he's amazing 
100%. Everything about the accent, the like flip to anger at various points mm-hmm. that Dan Aykroyd and John Cusack together are really amazing. The the way that they like as killers, the way that they are always sort of like sidling it up to each other. I mean, it's <laughs> so wary of one another, like the, the, the scene that you played at the beginning, you know, when they you know, very gingerly shake hands to make sure that they're, and then the, the scene in the cafe where they're ordering their eggs and uh, <laughs> they have, like their random noises that they make at one another is that had to be improvised. I like nobody wrote that into a script. It was just like, here's a good thing. I'm just going to make a monkey noise at, at Dan Aykroyd and then, as, and then exit this cafe. The thing that I really noticed watching that scene in particular is that like the way that it ends. So like they've both got guns. Both of these guns are under the table pointed at each other and concealed in like a lunch bag. And then like this kind of thing. And John Cusack gets out of the scene by like smashing a plate on the floor that the waitress is holding and then sort of stands up where Dan Aykroyd can't just, surreptitiously shoot him uh i guess and makes the monkey noise and walks out the door and then the next shot is just dan Aykroyd alone with this like gun <laughs> at the table with a gun in this paper bag and literally every other customer is just like reading the newspaper <laughs> like nothing has happened like this very odd thing did not just transpire in front of their faces the the waitress is completely gone like she was standing right there when john guzak did that and then that, well, he he used her as a, as a human shield for a minute there for a so second. He, yeah. Mm-hmm. He got away. He's like threw the thing to the ground, pushed her in, in front yeah. of him and, mm-hmm. and, uh, in between Dan, him and Dan Aykroyd. And, so and presumably like her. she sprints back to the kitchen or something. And none of the customers are affected by this at all. They're just cool. like, Oh, it's normal, no. normal. Gr- I mean, it's Detroit. It's, it's Detroit. Actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I hear gross point is very nice. <laughs> it, uh, those were excellent parts of the movie. Dan Aykroyd is absolutely the best. Uh, Jeremy Piven was less good than I remember. I remember him being really central to the movie. His whole like 10 years, like that sidekicky mm-hmm. thing being like uh, being something that he had a lot of fun with. But he, he's just there, which is fine for this movie. I'm just like the uh, <laughs> the line when he, he walks over he, he, to the to his car and John keeps like, oh, is this your, is your Beamer? Yeah, man, you know, you're never going to believe this sold to me, like Bob or whatever, mm-hmm. Lance or whatever. And uh, John Cusack goes, did, didn't you break your collarbone and steal your girl? <laughs> Jeremy Piven, yep, and that end of conversation. End of conversation. <laughs> Jeremy Piven also has one of those good moments at the uh, at the reunion in which, uh, whatever, some very pretty woman is talking to John Cusack or introducing herself to John Cusack, and they're having a moment, and Jeremy Piven is like, hi, Stacy, or whatever her name is. Hi, Stacy, remember me? I'm what's whatever my character's name is. And she's like, I don't know. He's like, we had 11 classes together. I wrote that paper for you. And she's like, yeah. And just kind of like exits the thing. And he's like, well, I've got to pursue this. I'm like, buddy. <laughs> okay. So he does good stuff in this movie too. Like good acting stuff. That is. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's right. He's not as, he's not like really a supporting actor. He's like a bit character. He is a bit character. Significantly more so than uh, than I had remembered him being. Dan Aykroyd makes this movie. Dan Aykroyd and John Cusack together are phenomenal. John Cusack phenomenal. Many drivers. Many drivers always doing her very best and doing a really good job actually with extremely limited material. I mean. I say extremely limited material, but she has to do more than most rom-com actresses of the era had to do. She has to, I mean, there's been this great wrong in the past. Uh, That's kind of a staple of the rom-com genre. That's not sort of unusual. I think about, I'm not going to be able to remember the title of this movie, Bridesmaids? Adam's like, but that's a, that's a later movie, but like, Adam Scott and uh, Lizzie Kaplan had this thing. Maybe she got pregnant. They made the decision to end the pregnancy. This is the thing that has sort of driven them apart. And now they like don't really speak to each other anymore. But this is the thing that be so like the idea that there's this sort of like traumatic event in the past that needs to be sort of made up for when they sort of like come back together for some reason. That's not super unusual, but like 
she has to see him murder someone and then still be like, I'm sorry. She has to witness him be like witness the fact that he's not kidding about being a hitman, and then being like, well, you could do worse. It's, it's a significantly more serious issue than a lot of rom-coms deal with. There you go. That's the way that's well said, (laughs) not purely romantic, but really existential. (laughs) And she has to play that. Like she has to be like, she has to be, she has to do normal rom-com shit, like be excited, but trepidatious and like quirky, all that stuff. Like when he shows up and like, not really know how to, and like be sort of his sort of like emotional equal in these scenes, but then also has to, you know, play horror and fear and then very quickly get over it because you know he shoots all the bad guys and saves her dad yeah Yeah. i mean i'd forgive someone who saved my dad (laughs) what's the best song on the soundtrack that you uh blister in the sun interesting that was going to be mine for like least sufferable song (laughs) i i forget i forget somehow like when I started the movie, I was like, oh, right, this fucking song is in it. I remember, like, people would play that at parties like that was something that people wanted to dance to. Like, that was the point. The 90s might have been the best decade for, like, music that was supposed to be, like, good, but was absolutely not for dancing or having fun, yeah. <laughs> too. Period. So- I was, I was just talking to Ms. Phillips about this. Oh, that's phenomenal. A couple of weeks ago, uh, he was in town to help out uh, clearing out a, a storage unit. And, you know, he, he put on a uh, like Green Day Pandora station and all these songs popped up on there. And he's like, you know what? For as bad a rap as 90s music gets, it wasn't there. There were some very enjoyable songs. There are certainly some enjoyable songs. It's just, it's enjoyable in a very different way than other areas. It's maybe not good music in a lot of cases, you know, like the Beatles are good music. Yeah. Or, you know, (laughs) but but it's it's like, like, it's it's not even very poppy music, which is weird. Like blister in the sun is a weird fucking song that like, that's still grates on. So I would, I would not, I would not call it pop music. Okay. Anti-pop. It is, it is for sure. So like this soundtrack absolutely shreds. It is such a good sound. But like, I look at like most of the things that are awesome on that. I'm like, Oh look, it's the clash. Even fucking motorhead is awesome uh you've got queen pete townsend uh aha what'd you say toots and the maytals toots and the maytals uh 99 luft balloons is in uh this movie like so so i i had a buddy who was a a film editor and he got to choose a lot of like what those background songs were going to be really. So, yeah. And so it makes you like, I I feel like this movie does a really good job at choosing the right, having the right songs, the right in a lot of instances, you know, some, some movies don't do a great job at that, but some movies do a really good job at that. That's right. Like the, the song curation here is extremely good. There's uh the, when John Cusack is holding this baby and is sort of seeing a real future and longing for human connection again, the actual lyrics from uh, the, the like sort of climactic lyrics from Queens under pressure are playing. And those read, if you were reading them sort of uh, off of a page rather than hearing them sung is like, love dares you to care for the people on the edge of the night and love dares you to change our way of caring about ourselves. This is our last dance. This is our last dance. This is ourselves. There you go. There you go. It like, seems like that was very purposely chosen. Very purposely chosen. Good work. Sound editor. 
you should, uh, you should you might as well just let me take over as your co-host at this point. I mean, who who the heck is this Joe Barry guy I've been hearing so much about? Honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> I, absolutely, you've 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 got the job. What movie are we going to do next? <laughs> Whatever your next guest chooses. Whatever the next guest chooses. That's going to be it's going to be toast, and it's going to be a lethal weapon. So let's get ready for that. Uh, I have a, I have a, uh, an admission. I've never seen any of the lethal weapon movies. Okay. So you can be on the zoom call, but you just don't get to talk. <laughs> is how this is gonna <laughs> work. You can kick me off as co-host for that one. That's cool. I feel like this podcast is really similar in sort of intention and movie genre to, uh, Jamel Bowie and John Gantz's unclear and presentation. I feel like John Gantz has not seen almost any of the movies that they talk about. He's like, Oh, this He's like under siege two is not a very good movie. I haven't seen it before. And I'm like, but like some of these movies, maybe including lethal weapon, I'll be very interested to see what you think. Like, I'm like, of course, if you fucking watch under siege two, when you're like in your mid thirties for the very first time, you're like, this movie is fucking stupid. Why would anybody make this movie? This plot doesn't make any sense. But like, if you see it when you're 13, it's entirely different. It's fucking awesome. Steven Seagal is a serious character. Into dark territory, is that what that one is? I don't remember, honestly. (laughs) It's a classic, and we're definitely going to cover it on this one. Okay, so Lethal Weapon. One of the Lethal Weapons is likely to be next. Let me uh, me play some outro music, and uh, I will just say that for the Point 10 podcast and my new co-host, Jay Plasman, you can find us on... Uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or basically anywhere you get your podcasts, please uh, subscribe to hear more. We get a ton of downloads. That's actually not a lie, which is insane given the uh, rudimentary nature of the editing process here. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me again. Good to Uh, be here. Absolutely my pleasure. We will see you and all of you next time.